Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship by Venture for Canada. Venture for Canada is a national charity on a mission to foster the entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. Our vision is a Canada where young people can equitably realize their entrepreneurial potential to help build one of the most prosperous entrepreneurial ecosystems in the world. Jonathan Hackett is the co-head BMO Energy Transition Group and head sustainable finance and managing director. In these roles, he advises clients on opportunities as they navigate the transition to a low-carbon economy, supports clients in navigating the impacts of ESG on their access to capital, and advises on sustainable financing structures. Jonathan's team also includes BMO's $250 million impact investment fund, which has a mandate to invest in companies that are producing solutions in the sustainability and energy transition space. Prior to joining BMO in 2017, Jonathan was a principal with the Boston Consulting Group and also a researcher in residence at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, where he completed his doctoral research in quantum gravity and topology. In this podcast episode, we discuss how to transition working across industries and sectors. I am very excited to have Jonathan Hackett on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship, this morning. Jonathan is going to be speaking about the very important topic of switching industries. And interestingly, research shows that people are not actually switching jobs more so than they did in the past. What people are doing, in fact, is that they are switching industries more than they did in the past. And I think given Jonathan has done two major industry shifts in his career to date, he is someone really well poised to speak on this topic. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? I am doing wonderful. It is feels very summery outside, and loving this perfect weather. Wish it was like this all year round. So to dive into the subject, Jonathan, can you describe the two major career shifts that you've made to date? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think I'll, I'll try to describe it. One to me is really clear. The second one is a bit of a blurry line. So the first career shift I, I made was really going from academia to management consulting. And I was, you know, for many years convinced that my path in life was to be a professor, to do research in uh, fundamental physics and really pushed forward on that goal to the exclusion of really any other uh, view of opportunities. And then once I completed my PhD, I actually made a shift uh, from that path and pursued instead a career in management consulting. I joined the Boston Consulting Group and worked there for five years. Um, the second shift, it, it, I say, is harder to define because there were two steps in that process. Um, the first is I left uh, the Boston Consulting Group and moved to BMO in a group that was called the Office of Strategic Management. And so for some people, you would call that a career shift because I went from a consulting firm to a bank. But in a lot of ways, that shift was smaller um, than the shift that I made once I was within BMO. Uh, from the Office of Strategic Management to a role focused on sustainable finance. And and the reason I think of that as a smaller shift is um, the OSM, that office that I was talking about, um, is a whole bunch of ex-consultants that do very similar work to consulting firms, even though they're in the bank. And so the, the, the change that that really was didn't feel like a career change. It just felt like a job title change and going from one side of a wall to another. But moving to sustainable finance was, for me, a a really big shift. It was a shift back into 
kind of being on a professional services side, but into a field that I was not, you know, I, I wasn't somebody that had been doing for years. It was somebody that was looking and saying, how do we bring the resources of the bank to bear in this space? And really taking a, an approach of how we grow the capabilities we had as a bank. And so for me, that felt much more like a career shift, I'd say, than even just joining the bank. What do you feel are some of the biggest challenges that folks face when they do a career shift? So one is just expectations and understanding how to operate within an organization or within a a role. So for me, going from academia to management consulting was, you know, calling it culture shock is really putting it mildly. When I was in academia, you know, I wrote my slides for presentations via writing code in a language called LaTeX and compiling that. And the great feature I would have said in LaTeX was you didn't really need to figure out where images went on pages or things like this. It just did that for you. And whatever it came up with is good enough Um, versus going into management consulting where you you could have a pretty solid argument about where to put a box on a page and people really treated that as an important issue. And so understanding what was important to people, understanding what the kind of definition of success was, was really important. I would say the other is just context. You know, in in management consulting, I was surrounded by people that went to business school, whether that be an undergrad in commerce or an MBA. And so there were so many things that they took for granted as what people knew and understood. Meanwhile, I had done, you know, 13 classes in calculus uh, across 10 years of university, along with other subjects that just kept on not coming up in management consulting. What was, you know, what I was trying to do was bring the knowledge of problem solving and the methods I used for breaking down and approaching problems, but with none of the same background and none of the same context as everybody else had. And so making sure that you, I wasn't miscommunicating, that I wasn't misunderstanding, that when people assume that everyone would know and think of things the same way, that the differences in how I thought, which were some of the, the assets that really the, the firm was looking for in bringing people with diverse backgrounds in, that those were still allowing me to, you know, not getting in the way, sorry, let me say that again, that those were not becoming a hindrance and that I was finding ways to navigate by picking up the context clues of what people were talking about. What are some of the skills that you developed through your physics degree that maybe you would have thought weren't transferable to your later career path, but have ended up actually being incredibly helpful? So one that has come up recently is being able to describe nuclear fusion. Um, that is one that did not you know, seem like it was going to be relevant uh, when I left uh, theoretical physics. More recently, especially with the you know, breakthroughs that have happened in some of the labs in the United States, but more importantly, the companies that are raising capital today to make nu- uh, nuclear fusion into a reality, um, I've had a few of those moments where people say, how does anybody else do this? You know, how, how is somebody else also able to do the investment banking side, but help people understand what's happening from a fusion reaction side so they can understand the differences in these technologies and why you would invest in one company over another company? Um, that's probably a bit of a, an extreme example. I would say the more common thing is what I really mentioned earlier, the idea of how you break down problems how you use the logic in order to find a, a path forward around to how you would perform an analysis. That's something that physics and 
consulting or advisory work has in common uh, quite often. So some of the times where you look at a big mess of data and you say, how do I turn this into something useful? That's actually something where physics was a great background to approach those kinds of ambiguous problems that need someone to define a structure and then from that structure to define a set of insights. When you think back to your first month working at BCG uh, full-time, what was that month uh, like? What, what did it feel like? What, like when you think back to that, that transition, uh, how would you describe it? So I, I'll, I'll answer in two parts. The, the first part is the truth, which is literally based on what you said. I, I joined BCG at a very odd time, just based on really re- late recruiting and having not thought through when I was starting. So I, I joined at the end of November. Um, so my first month was great. There was a Christmas party. There were a lot of office activities. It was really just, you know, kind of uh, mostly social. Um, in actuality, my first working month, I would say, was a, a much harder adaptation. So one was just trying to pull back sometimes on the desire to probe data to the nth degree and, you know, ask a lot of really interesting questions, but questions that didn't drive a change in outcomes. Um, and then trying to find the ways to communicate that, to communicate those insights that I was then getting to by not going necessarily as deep into a way that was usable by other people and beginning to kind of learn some of the ropes of communicating in the corporate environment or at least a more, you know, a less academic environment. Likewise, when you think about the first couple of months that you had at BMO, what were, what were those months uh, like? So I think the the biggest adjustment uh, was using the word we um, versus you. Um, Because in management consulting, a lot of the time you are outside, right? You are saying, here is what you should do as an organization. Here is how you should approach this problem. And there were definitely some times when I caught myself and realized that that now I was part of that team. That it, the, the flip side of which is that then you deal with the consequences of your recommendations. Um, and, and you need to actually think through not just what somebody else should do, but how you would feel going about solving that problem or working on uh, the, the space that you've now taken on and said, yeah, this is what we should do. Um, the other piece, though, I would say is it didn't feel too different, partially because I continued working on some projects that I'd been supporting from the other side and you know working across the organization. And it took even longer, I would say, to really find my footing doing new work that really reflected my position within the company. Given you've had such diverse uh, professional life experiences, working uh, or studying and receiving a PhD in physics, working at BCG, now working in sustainable finance, how does having such a breadth of uh, professional experiences help you in your day-to-day work now? So one thing that I find particularly comes up is an ability to understand people where they are. Um, I, I don't believe that I am necessarily all, all things to all people, but because of that breadth, I've had the chance to reflect and really say, you know, am I listening to people based on their experiences and finding a language in common with them? And, you know, often that means that, yes, when I see a company and there's a technical team, I can spend time trying to understand what the technical team's actually working on. And that can sometimes give me an insight about the organization and the problems that they're trying to solve. Um, But also a lot of it is just realizing that you do need to take that time to reflect on where people are coming from 
what problems they're trying to solve, and how their language and the choices that they make in communicating might reflect that, um, rather than just assuming that everybody thinks the same as you. I think that that experience that I was describing earlier of everybody else almost having a common language and me being separate from that, having gone through that a few times, you realize that's everywhere and that's everyone. Um, you, you might think you're alone in having you know a different background, but people's experiences are very diverse. And often we assume wrongly that everyone in an organization is homogenous, even if they went to the same university, even if they went to the same program, even if they've done the same thing for 10 or 20 years, people have such diverse experiences along that way that you really can miss what people are trying to say if you just assume that everyone's speaking the same language all the time. Let's say there's a listener and they're in a career and they're hating it and they want to transition to a new career. What advice would you give that person on how to successfully transition industries? So I'll put a big caveat on this, which is I don't ever think that I've done things in a good systematic manner when it came to those transitions. You know, I've met so many people that I think were really impressive based on being in a situation like you described, coming up with a plan, executing that plan and arriving at a destination. And I, I will admit that I've felt very, very lucky along the way that despite not having such a plan, I've landed in really great places. Um, you know, when I applied to BCG, it was from having received an interview offer from another consulting firm and somebody saying, oh, you know, did you apply to BCG too? And I said, what's BCG? Um, because I truly had no idea. Um, and so what I would say is <laughs> maybe to, to go back and give what I, is not advice based on my own experience, taking that time to reflect, asking people, what are the options out there and really trying to solicit where your experiences might be useful in other fields. That's something that I think is worth taking the time to do. I, I've done this on the flip side for someone else. I had a friend who was looking at leaving academia and said, you know, are there jobs out there for someone like me? And, and I took the time to work with them to say, like, what do you do? What do you do on a daily basis so that we can understand what skills you have? Um, and for me, that was really entertaining because we went through this process where the starting point is, well, I go into the lab and I do observational astrophysics. And I said, okay, but like, what's... What's the core activity? You know, what do you do? It's like you turn on a computer. Yes, you load something. What do you load? And he's like, oh, I load these, you know, scripts and shells, and I start coding in Python to process a multi-terabyte data set to find correlations between different elements within it. And for him, that's observational astrophysics. But for a lot of other people, that's called being a data scientist. And so having somebody else reflect back to him that the words that he was using, the things that he was doing, have another meaning out there in another space, gave him the opportunity to look at that and say, okay, here's what I can do instead. And here's the opportunity I can pursue. One follow-up question is, what it was the end result? Like, what, what was the journey of your friend from academia to a new career path? Or did, or did your friend decide to stay in that, that role? No, so it, it, it's funny. I often reflect on him as having this really interesting year because that was the year he finished his PhD. He got married. They bought a house. They actually got pregnant with their first kid. Um, and his jump was from, yes, doing observational astrophysics to doing data science at a company that made 
both a Simpsons video game and a Star Wars video game. And it, to, to know his background or to know kind of what he cared about in life is to say he accomplished every goal that he had ever had in his entire life in that one year. Um, to, to kind of make that career jump and get to work on two properties that he cared about very much, but also then to have accomplished every other life goal. It was an amazing experience for him. Yeah, that sounds like it was a, a great example of a really successful career transition. Yeah, he, he's no longer with the same company, but he's still, yes, very much doing data science. He has found lots of great opportunities and absolutely the skills that he had from his PhD just through that different lens have you know been very valued elsewhere. To your point about you giving advice to your friend in terms of how to make that career transition, how do you think that mentors or friends, advisors, et cetera, can help ease the career transition for folks who want to switch industries? It's an interesting question. I, I do think, and you know, I'll point back to it. I think there is a great use case for people that have been through that journey that really can share some of those experiences where it's been hard, where it's been easy, where there were, you know, tricks that really worked for people as they were adapting. That's something that I think does benefit and, you know, people, People really can get value from that. I think the other is just reflecting things back, you know, kind of what I, I hope I did for my friend there, where you say, okay, I'm not going to give you the answer of, hey, I, this is what I did. I'm just going to listen and I'm going to try and help you see different ways that you can see yourself, that you can see the situations um, and, and try to be there as a sounding board. And I think that is something that really can be beneficial and can help people navigating what can be a pretty complicated situation. If you were to go back in time to your first day at BCG and give yourself advice, looking back on the career transitions that you went through, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I, I think one thing would really just be patience. I came out of a place where I was pretty experienced, where I felt like I knew what I was doing and went into a place where I knew nothing and really didn't you know, have that confidence. And I felt like there was this immense pressure to immediately perform, to immediately kind of adapt. And that takes time. And I think along the way, I was always wondering why I wasn't you know, exactly where somebody with the exact same number of years of experience at BCG should be. You know, shouldn't I be better at this? Shouldn't I be moving faster along some of these progressions? And having a bit of patience and saying, well, look, I've made a pretty big change. I've switched what I'm doing in a pretty fundamental way. And it's okay to not catch up. It's okay to be at a different you know, phase in my career, despite you know, the age I might have versus some of my peers, or despite the number of years in that role. BCG has some you know, harsh lines that you kind of have to meet. And so that was still important that I was meeting them, but not getting the first promotion window every time is okay. It's okay to kind of take a little more time. And part of that just reflects having a different background, having a different experience. And I, I do feel in my case, it also, on the other side, meant that I brought those other experiences and have had advantages in other situations, even if it wasn't by being the best at you know being a consultant on day one. In your current role at BMO, to what extent do you need technical financial expertise for your role? I feel like if I say I don't, my clients would be really upset. Um, so I, I do think you need a, a, quite a lot. 
Um, and, and I just draw the distinction of particularly, you know, the role I play within investment banking, advising companies on, you know, raising capital. You need to be able to understand both what it actually means to put capital into a business, why you do, how you think about valuations, and then also why and how investors make choices. Um, now, I think about that as a really people-based thing rather than a kind of free hand of the market kind of question. But even within that, knowing how investors are going to look at a company and ask a set of questions in order to come to a conclusion, it is really important in that space, even if it's centered around how does this company drive the energy transition or how does this company advance sustainability? Um, and so it, it is almost kind of knowing the language uh, in, in the space that you're in in order to be effectual. Um, that being said, you know, I've never done an MBA. I've actually never taken a business class outside of a two-week two training that BCG offered when I joined the firm. Um, and so those are things that you can pick up and that you can develop an acumen from through use and practice, not just through academic study. And I'd love to double click on how you learned those skills over time, which it sounds like they were done uh, experientially. When you look back on your career, how did you develop this financial uh, expertise uh, kind of over a period of many years? Yeah. So I, I think about it really has having come from a collection of experiences, um, a lot of which kind of felt very formative, right? So doing different projects when I was at BCG, you would pick up a different understanding of a different piece of that puzzle, uh, whether it was understanding how costs actually are incurred at a company and the, the set of choices that people make that if you're a recovering theoretical physicist, you might look at and say, that sounds insane. But then you dive in and you say, okay, now I think I begin to understand why you're making a choice. So making dis decisions based on amortization schedules rather than actual cash, as an example, is one that really begins to help you understand that what drives incentives and drives behavior is not actual dollars, it is reported dollars. And so some of those trade-offs that people make really come to light. I, I think for me, the one that was probably the biggest uh, experience and biggest change in how I thought was some work that we did for a client around total shareholder return. Um, because that really gets into how investors are looking at a company. And, and for all that total shareholder return, it's just a calculation you get into questions that say, well, why does someone own this share in this company? And what is the, the kind of value proposition that we're delivering? Is it growth at all costs? Is it you know, some level of protection? Is it, you know, is it a stable dividend? What are the things that they're valuing? And what are the decisions that you make as a result? And I think about that often in my current role because so many conversations around the energy transition start with, you know, why doesn't company A just do action B? And most often you get into something that says, well, one, is it accretive to how they're valued, right? Is it something that would be considered dilutive because it, you know, is very risky um, for a company that needs stable returns or vice versa? Is it, you know, very safe investments that companies that have very high risk multiples um, just can't really engage in? because it's not the highest and best use of their capital versus the activities that are core to their business. And, and so that 
perspective really, I think, helped. But it, it really is a collection of experiences like that that fleshed out my different my understanding of different financial concepts from, hey, I read this in a book to, okay, I really get how companies are deciding what to do based on the information and why, therefore, certain metrics are important, whereas other metrics aren't. One difference I found between living in Canada and living in the U.S. is that in the U.S., there is sometimes more of an acceptance that you don't need a business degree to like work in business, right? You don't, you don't need an MBA. And there's a, I worked at Goldman Sachs as my first job out of school, and there were tons of people who had like studied art history and physics and that actually a very small relative, well, not small, I would say a minority of people had actually studied business versus you go into a lot of Canadian contexts in business and the vast majority of people who study commerce, they have a, or they have an MBA. Do you think that business education is overrated in Canada? Ooh, I feel like this is a challenging question to answer without offending a lot of friends. Um, but let me try and answer it kind of in the, the reverse, which is I do think that the liberal arts education paradigm in the United States has a lot of value. Um, part of that is, yes, you get a better opportunity to explore some of the options that are out there before having made a commitment. You know, I think about a great example of privilege in Canada is knowing what undergrad program leads to certain kinds of jobs. because where I grew up in my experience, nobody ever told me that there was such a thing as Queen's Commerce. Nobody ever told me that there was an IVHBA program. These are things that I just didn't know. And I, I didn't grow up in a house that had no one in these spaces. Like my mother has an MBA. You know, there are lots of people that could have known or almost could have known, but because they were just separate from that kind of space, I never knew those options. Now, I, I probably still would have said, no way in hell I'm going to do any of those things. You know, I'm going to go study physics and it wouldn't have changed my path. But I think so often in Canada, if you don't know that there are certain programs that lead to a certain path because, you know, you have a aunt or uncle or a parent or a friend of the family that is in business, you just may not know some of those opportunities. Whereas if you have a liberal arts education where you really are saying, hey, you can study whatever you want. And that'll give you a great set of fundamentals. You can then explore a little bit more. And yes, it's through those jobs that you might find along the way that you might get access. Yes, there's still lots of privilege there as well. But I think the streaming so early to say, you know, everyone I knew that thought they would want to do, sorry, everyone that I knew that had an idea of what they wanted to do when they were in high school was going to be an engineer because that's a job, right? It was a, you got to go to this program to get a job. And there were some people that wanted to be lawyers and they studied whatever made sense along the way to then go, you know, get their uh, legal degree after a few, two to three years. And I think the idea that you have to know what the paths are into business at 17 or 18 is really challenging. And having a space that's more open for people to get an education and, uh, space that gives them an understanding of how to solve problems, how to, you know, evolve their thinking makes a lot of sense before we ask somebody to say, you know, hey, did you know that when you're 18, you made a choice that really cut off a bunch of options for you? How do you think that graduate education and potentially MBAs 
can help folks who are looking to transition careers? So I do often talk about an MBA as a career reset. It is something that is a very useful demarcation of, hey, I am going to change what I'm doing. And it also lets somebody with the benefit of a few years of experience learn a set of concepts, go through a set of exercises, you know, case-based MBAs are a great example of that, where you're learning how to apply your knowledge, your experience, your kind of maturity based on where you are into a new context and showing that you can do that in an effective way. And so in some ways, yes, it's a big reset button. It's also a way of showing to a new employer that you've had a way of kind of incorporating more thinking, more perspective into your experiences to be ready for that new opportunity. Um, I've met lots of people that, you know, tried to hit that button, went right back to exactly what they're doing. And that's great because it is then saying, hey, with perspective, I want to go back to that same field, but also worked with a lot of people that, yeah, took an MBA, took a career reset, BCG is full of them, you know, banks are full of them. People that then said, okay, what can I do with this experience now? And I think in some ways, this goes back to like a high school biology teacher I had who always said it's absolutely insane that we ask 18-year-olds to make these kinds of decisions, give people like another five to 10 years, and then they can actually decide what they want to do with their life. And MBA is a great way of kind of having that, that ability to restructure society almost. I often find it funny how every company and organization has in some ways its own language and, and also industries can have their own languages. And in the context of our work, sometimes I'll just use the term will, which stands for work integrated learning. And within the sector, everyone knows what will is. But then I'm, if I'm having a conversation with somebody, they're like, they would have no idea what this will acronym uh, means. I'm sure there's probably acronyms you can relate to. How do you navigate in some ways, learning a kind of new language, a new way of describing things. Uh, when you think back to the two major career transitions that you've gone through. Yeah, it's challenging for sure. Yes, context clues are important. I, I cannot remember for the life of me, but there was definitely an example when I joined BCG of somebody labeling an axis and me, you know, asking a question, they're like, that, that definitely does not stand for that, you know. Yes, it's those same letters, but you know, it's not something about kinetic energy or something like that. It's you know this other thing. Um, I think the experience of sustainable finance, though, is a, probably a more poignant example in this area where you just have to try and find enough places to read examples. You know, uh, sustainable finance is hard because there's not really a good textbook, right? Where you can say, oh, you know, you want to get into this space. You know, here's where you should go off and read. It's you know reading what's being published on Bloomberg Green, it's trying to find all of the places where there's a velocity of content and a velocity of conversation that you can then pick up what people mean so that at the end of the day, you know, there are only, well, I'm going to butcher this math, but like 6,000 three-letter acronyms, 8,000, something like that. I, I'm sure I'm going to be sad that I can't do 26 to the third power in my head anymore. But, you know, that means that you run out of space really quickly and that you have to double up. And so realizing that even within a subject, you know, the number of things that something can mean has to be more than one. And so you're going to have to always use context clues can give yourself a bit of forgiveness, can give yourself a bit of a realization that it's impossible 
for it always to be exactly the right thing, uh, especially if you're spread across something that's a broad subject. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about in terms of how, in many ways, there can be so many different sub languages out there, and and uh, it, it can be complicated to navigate. I can think in my first job, uh, learning all these random acronyms that were even specific to the team, and sometimes having no idea what exactly was uh, going on. Thinking more at a macro level and recognizing that people are going to have to make more and more career uh, transitions uh, across industries, likely in the future. How do you think schools and post-secondary institutions can better prepare young people for making the eventual industry transitions that they're going to have to, to do? So I do think, and this goes back to what you were just talking about, the different types of education. I was always framed to me that university was about learning how to learn. And I do think that's a valuable skill set, especially in a world where that's changed pretty fundamentally from what it was 30 years ago. You know, library skills were a thing when I first went to university. It feels like that's not quite the world we live in anymore, but that's more and more important when you say that somebody's going to change careers, that, that you're going to need to learn how you can synthesize background materials, context, different sources into something that is a a working basis for operating in a new space. And so helping people learn how to take in that type of information, how to then operate, it's one that strangely enough, I actually really value pure math education for the skill set it gave me in the space where, you know, you might start a new subject in pure math in university and you walk in and you get a definition. This is what this, you know, you're in group theory, here's what a group is. Great. Now let's start learning the tools. Let's start learning the, you know, the, the results that come from those tools and building a basis to be able to have a conversation. At the end of the course, you might be able to explain what you think of as intuitive results that at the start of the course, you didn't even have the language to use. But that process mimics very much going into a new space and saying, okay, like, this is my definition of success in this space. This is what my job actually is. Okay. How do I learn all the tools? How do I learn the language? How do I learn the theorem equivalents in, in a working world that allow me to operate so that I know how I can move forward in that job? And I think that exercise of starting over again versus always being, you know, kind of a, a cumulative mile, like a capstone-based program, it's really valuable to have some of those diverse experiences. As you look at your career, Jonathan, how do you think your career transitions has impacted your adaptability? So I do think it would have been near impossible to do my second kind of major transition without having done my first. For me, I, I think go, getting a big, broad mandate that we want to be really good at sustainable finance, figure out how we do that, and operating in a new part of the bank and trying to take that on without having made a big jump somewhere in the past, I think would be hard. I, I, I have met a lot of people in this world that say, I don't know how I would do X, I do ABC. And I think having an experience that tells you that yes, you can, 
take on a new challenge and learn a new space and apply some things from it and learn from it is a really great, valuable experience because it does give you confidence. And in some ways, it felt lower stakes that first time. I, and I say that now. At the time, the idea that if I failed, I would have no job and would have, you know, failed at the transition from academia scared me absolutely. And like, I probably lived in constant fear of that for three years at BCG before I realized that I wasn't getting fired the next day. Um, but at the same time, I think it would have been really challenging to take on such a big shift without having had that experience the first time when in reality, it was your first job. If you wash out of it, you can have another first job. Right, you can start at the bottom versus feeling like if you're trying to start midway or shift into a new space, not at an absolute junior level, there's a pressure to perform quickly that I think is more real and can lead to you just saying, "Oh goodness, I'm going to have to start at the bottom again." Jonathan, this has been a super interesting conversation on career transitions. We've touched on this topic a little bit as part of many of the other interviews, but we've never done such a deep dive on the specific uh, area. To close things off, are there any other final comments, thoughts, reflections you have on career transitions and switching industries? So maybe one, which is something that we've talked a lot about in my house in the last few months, is just this idea of life is a journey rather than a destination. I think it's trivial to say it, um, but really to reflect on the idea that so often you get caught in a treadmill of saying, I need to do this one thing and then it'll be okay, or then I'll be secure, then I'll be stable, then I'll be at the right level. Um, and it's okay to sometimes have to push, but also know where you can actually be having the life that you enjoy where you can be confident that you're doing a thing that is what you want to do is something that I think I have not valued as much in the past as I'm trying to currently, um, even explicitly in the past day. I think I was very much focused on certain thresholds and goals. And so I think making sure you're taking that opportunity, especially if you're thinking about changing roles, to not just be setting up for another Sisyphusian push um, and to really say, am I doing this because I would like not just a new destination, but actually the journey I'm about to embark on. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think sometimes when people leave jobs or they leave industries, they often are doing it just to run away. And it just uh, can be same problems, <laughs> new situation. And, and to your point that it is really, it's important to often focus more on like what are the journey of life and to recognize that perfection is is impossible. Uh, one question I have for you, Jonathan, is that similar advice has actually been given a lot on this podcast. And it's an interesting, like we often would ask this question, like what advice would you give to your younger self? And this was the advice. This is the definitely most prevalent piece of advice. What influenced you to come to that realization? Honestly, conversations with my partner uh, is the real answer. Um, partially having a kid um, that the goal of having a kid is not turning them into an 18-year-old, right? You know, we have a three-year-old. My goal is to enjoy him being three. My goal is to enjoy him being four. My goal is, of course, to, you know, support him and shape him and give him all of the resources that he needs along the way. But you're 
goal with the kid is not turning them into an adult. And so when you reflect on that and you begin to say, well, why is this so different than everything else? I think it helps you see that if you're just, if, if that is your goal, then why did you have a kid, right? <laughs> like it, you're signing up for 18 years or, or more of, you know, supporting them. If you think that every step along the way is suffering until you get to a, an eventual goal, that that is absolutely bonkers. And that is really wise words to end things off, Jonathan. It has been a pleasure speaking with you and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and through our email list. And be sure to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. Have feedback on today's episode? Let us know directly in the app. Thanks again for listening and for joining the new wave of entrepreneurs. Till next time.